0: You're listening to a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HT Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor, Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Sara Rai, who's written Raw Umber a memoir. Hi, Sara. Hi, Manjula. So, uh, you know, like I was saying, I just loved this book. And, uh, I mean, there's so many things in it. I mean, it's a memoir, but it's much more, I thought. So, should we just start with, um, maybe I should read the flap, a bit of the flap so that, yes, you know, the, yes, uh, listeners do. get an idea? Yeah. Okay. Spare and elegant raw umbers as much about the steady pulse of Sarah Rai's 1960s childhood as it is about the nature of remembering and the role that memory plays in shaping a writer's sensibility. With the figure of her grandfather, Premchand, looming over her childhood and with others in her family, grandmother, parents, aunts, uncles and cousins, also writers, it is hardly a surprise that Sarah Rai fell into writing. Fell into writing. Rai is a bilingual writer travelling between Hindi and English, with her fiction primarily in Hindi. Perhaps inevitably for a fiction writer, the boundary between memory and imagination gets blurred. It is the unconscious jottings of the mind and the cadences that enter the years, the inner life that develops during years of unhurried living in places like Allahabad and Banaras, that prepare the ground for the fiction writer. In this intimate chronicle, some of the characters in the family gallery are vividly brought to life, Sarah Rai's Drummond Road home in Allahabad, her mother's ancestral Nawab, Nawab ki Deori uh, Haveli, and her grandmother Shivrani Devi's Godol- Godolia, I'm sorry. Godolia. <laughs> is that how it is? Godolia, Godolia. Godolia House in Banaras. All have their own tales to tell. Raw Umber is a work of deep humanity, told with affectionate humor and an austere lyricism. In the telling of the story, Rai is stuck to her own... Slightly eccentric remembering of the ever-changing fugitive past. Why slightly eccentric? I didn't think it was slightly eccentric. You didn't I think so. It was very <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was very honest, and uh, you know, yes, I thought it was very perceptive and deep. Yeah, I, eccentric wasn't the word that I was okay. like associated <laughs> with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, talk about, I mean, I found all the pieces, you know, that make this book really, um, I mean, they're talking about one thing, but they're also talking about many other things. Like if you're talking about the home, but, you know, in Allahabad, but then you're talking about many, through it, you're talking about a whole lot of things, family and culture and language, you know. So you want to uh, start with, I don't know, with why you put these particular pieces together in this memoir.
1: Uh, Okay, right. Uh, Manjula, these pieces have all been written at different times. I mean, uh, as I've uh, said, I think in my preface that this has been going on for a very long time. I didn't even Mm -hmm. know that this was going to be a book later because this was like as writers, like writing for us is like breathing. So it's important that we put down everything that we see around us. So it started Mm -hmm. uh, sort of like that. And it started many years ago, as I said, uh, with a piece on Mm -hmm. my father who was then alive, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. uh, it became a quite a big piece, which eventually I had to split into two separate uh, essays. So, uh, yes. I mean, I wasn't really thinking of it as a book at the time. So, when uh, mm-hmm. I think I got about four or five uh, separate essays written, then it occurred mm-hmm. to me that perhaps this could uh, become a book of uh, different, but interconnected uh, material. And that uh, mm. will be shaped into a book. So that, that's how it all started. I think it started, it sounds like a very long time, but I mean, 25 years ago, something like that, you know, it was a very, very okay. long time ago that has time, perhaps longer, because my father has been dead now for, you know, 25 and upwards. So uh, mm. it started a very long time ago. And it was just a kind of, as I said, it's, it's a bit like breathing, you know, like you write a diary, you write letters, you want to capture everything that is around you, not let it escape. You know, so it yes, started sort of yes. like that as a very personal uh, thing for myself, written for myself to remember things. Mm. It was not meant to be seen. Uh, but oh. uh, later, uh, I thought, why not put these random sort of musings uh, in the form of a book? So, mm. uh, well, I've been in the habit of writing diaries ever since I was a child. So, mm. some of I didn't really take much from the diaries, but yes, there were some reflections that I thought mm. that why not use those as well. So those also went into this. So it's been a very long and very, uh, uh, what shall I say? It's not tedious at all. A very long process of remembering and and becoming as I remembered, you know. Mm. So, I mean, mm. which is why this uh, I talk about the boundary between uh, memory and fiction becoming blurred, because... While you're writing, when you are writing something, uh, mm-hmm. there's some other process that takes over, you know, you are mm-hmm. not quite remembering, but some, something that you start inventing at the same time. So uh, it becomes like that. So I wouldn't say that everything I've said in this uh, memoir is true. Some of it has been mm-hmm. added on to, invented, embellished, you know, so it's been like that with me uh, ever since mm-hmm. I started writing this long ago.
0: Mm -hmm. but i was wondering also like if you're saying that you also referred because you're talking about people and things which are very close to you i was also wondering you know why you were writing it did you censor yourself you know self-censorship when it comes to writing about you know even if they're dead like family members you know yes i mean there's a natural and you know impulse towards that yeah you know did you also face that
1: uh, well, in a way, I think everyone does because I mean, there's so much happening. Uh, you can't put mm-hmm. in everything, so you sort yes. of tailor the material to according to what you're writing. I've tried to be honest. I've tried not to sort of, I haven't tried to censor as such, but to bring mm-hmm. these people alive. And these are what I've written about. These people are things that have mattered to me, you know.
0: Yes. Yes. And also, you know, I thought throughout the book. I mean, I, I you know, you make. I mean, there are some lines which really stand out, you know. And uh, first of all, everyone dies. This is no narrative of loss. Dying is merely a function of living. I thought it was a great line. Yeah. Great couple of
1: lines. Yeah. You know, things like this. Yeah. I mean, I've always felt that, you know. I mean, dying is made a lot of, and it is, of course, it's the cessation of a life. Uh, But I mean... Hmm. I find in most, I mean, this is especially I find on books, uh, the blurbs of books, that this is a narrative of loss. So somehow this has Mm. bothered me because, I mean, dying is part of living. How how will you not die? I mean, everyone has died. There's not a single person on earth who has not died. So why is it necessarily (laughs) a thing of loss? I mean, it's just a process that takes place. You are born, you live your life, you do various things, and then there comes a point when life will have to cease. You know, so it's not... Necessarily, a narrative of loss. It's it's the mm. telling of a life which includes life and it includes death. So uh, mm.
0: it came to me like that. And and you know when you're talking about uh, talking about even the you know death ceremonies, I thought it was very lyrical. You know, to, uh, I think the chapters towards the end when you're uh, you know uh, talking about those death ceremonies and uh, the Shia ceremonies, I thought that was a great uh, that's a great piece.
1: Yeah, actually, mm. uh, as I said, there's this chapter I've got called uh, Old Blood, uh, which is all mm. about death. Uh, it's about yes. d- death because, I mean, we, we, in my childhood, I saw a lot of death. I mean, we, for four years or five years in a row, there was a death every year in June. You know, it was a very peculiar yes. thing that happened in our family. There, somebody or the other would die in the month of June. So it became mm. almost like, you know, you expected someone to die in June. And uh, this this thing haunted my childhood. I mean, the first death happened when I was eight years old, and my mm. brother died. You know, and mm. uh, he had he was away from home. Uh, my uh, three I had three brothers, so all of them had gone mm. to my uh, father's sister's place in Sagar, and uh, uh, they had gone out for a picnic uh, to the river, the river Narm- mm. Narmada, I think it is there, and. Uh, mm. uh, I don't know what happened to him. He just uh, uh, started sinking. He became blue. Maybe he got bitten by a snake. Nobody really found out what happened to him. Mm. So he Mm. died and he was away from home and we got the news. My mother got the news. My mother was here in Allahabad with us. And uh, these children had gone away for a holiday to their aunt's place. And this news came, you know, so that uh, that was very vivid. I still remember it so vividly, that moment when she heard the news because it was told Mm. to her on the phone. And she was speaking, and she wouldn't. She spoke in half sentences, and then uh, the receiver that she was speaking into slipped from her hand. And you know, we had those mm-hmm. old dial-up phones then, so it was this black mm-hmm. uh, receiver, and there was a table, uh, the table on which it was kept. So this receiver was dangling down from it, and that mm-hmm. image kind of implanted itself in my head uh, mm-hmm. as a kind of thing with death. You know, I remembered death mm-hmm. when I saw the receiver there, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how it started but then after that every year as i've said in that chapter i mean we had yes. a death the next year again it was my first cousin who died and he of course he died of leukemia and he was 18 years old then so that mm-hmm. happened then in 67 somebody else my uncle died then there was my great-grandmother also and all in june all every in june, june, all in june every year in june so four years i think and then later many years later there was another death in the family and that too was in june So, I mean, I was thinking of calling this chapter the June deaths, but then there were Mm. other deaths too, like my mother and my aunt, as I said, I mean, they were like my two mothers. So they both Mm. died on the same night. Uh, You know, they were very attached to each other, very close to each other. So they were uh, in our house in uh, Nawab Ki my my mother's ancestral house, as as it happens, Mm. my grandmother's house. Mm. So we had all Mm. gone there uh, over Christmas. And uh, Mm. my aunt, who already had, a couple of heart attacks before this, Uh, she was already Mm -hmm. weak and they were both extremely close to each other. So my aunt that night had a heart attack again and she didn't make it. I mean, obviously that got her, that heart attack. So Mm -hmm. uh, when my mother was told about this, she was in the same house. She also, uh, you know, uh, had a heart attack and had a stroke. Mm -hmm. We never really found out what eventually in the end happened because she was also severely diabetic. So we took her, mm. both of them to the same hospital, as I've described in that chapter. So, yes. I mean, yeah, so it was... And the
0: doctor didn't realize
1: that it was another woman. No, because they looked like they were sisters and they were sort of three years apart. Mm. And uh, the doctor mm. thought, I've just said that this woman is already dead. Why have they brought her back again? You know, so mm. yeah, it was very strange. And but uh, mm. obviously he realized eventually that this was a different woman. So that was uh, quite a nightmare of a night, I remember. I mean, it was... Uh, so, I mean, basically death has played a big part in my life because everyone has been dying, you know, over the, uh, right from my childhood, there have been people, you know, I've, see, I've had occasion to observe death quite closely.
0: Mm. So, mm. This, so did, did that make you, I mean, I don't know, melancholic or, you know? Uh, well, no, uh, melancholic. I, don't, I think it's
1: just temperament. I mean, you were born melanch- with a melancholy temperament, <laughs> like or you're not. <laughs> so, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yes, I do turn yeah. melancholy sometimes, but I mean, I don't think that's a predominant thing in my nature. But I think everyone mm. has moments of uh, sadness or melancholy, but uh, of course, yeah. there are moments of joy as well. so
0: they offset each yeah. other. Yeah. You yeah, know, but I was also wondering when I was reading, like, there's some characters who come in, you know, you, you talk about them, like the, like this Munni who used to play with you yeah. a, when you were a child yeah. and then you mentioned that she had dementia and I really, you know, there's some people in the book that I wanted to know more about. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, yeah. What happened to her? Like, I don't I know. Don't I mean, think. Munni, like, she was
1: a childhood friend, you know, like, uh, in Allahabad, as I've said, I mean, there are these bungalows which have sort of very large grounds. So her house was, uh, is still next to us. And uh, mm. there was this row of bushes in between. And my sister and I, we used to crawl from under the bushes and go into that house. And we were friends mm. with the, uh, with Munni, who was called Sandhya. Actually, her name was Sandhya. So she was called mm. Munni at home. And there were her mm. uh, brothers who were friends of my brothers. So it was like, uh, you know, everyone was friends with each other. So uh, mm. we used to go and she we studied in the same school. So we... Uh, often met we met every day i mean she, in school also we met at home also we met so she was a close friend in that sense but i mean in the sense of spending a lot of time together we used to go and you yeah. know uh, crawl under the bush and go and play badminton there in the because mm. she had this badminton court uh, thing in her on the side of her house so we used to go and play mm. badminton there and then mm. after a while i mean in school also, you get separated because, I mean, we went, I went into the ISC, the Cambridge uh, exam Board of Exams uh, section, and mm. she was in the high school section. So from there, we got separated. Then after that, mm. I went away to Delhi to finish the rest of my education, and she stayed mm. behind here uh, in Allahabad. Mm. And uh, mm. so we sort of lost touch. And then our worlds di- became different, you know. Mm. She started working for the... Uh, Indian Patrika which is the uh, local newspaper and uh, mm-hmm. I had gone on to Delhi and then from there I went to JNU and then I had sort of you know I mean our paths basically di- diverted, got diverted mm-hmm. so uh, yeah. I lost track with her for a long time and then mm-hmm. one day when I was going somewhere I saw her getting down from a rickshaw in front of her house so naturally I mm-hmm. stopped and I saw her mm-hmm. say after 20 years or something like that had gone by and I hadn't seen her and then mm-hmm. I noticed that her lips had turned pink and she was always a small built uh, girl, you know, very small. Mm-hmm. But somehow she seemed mm-hmm. to have shrunk even further. And uh, she looked at me and she said, I know you, she says, you know. And mm-hmm. then, then she mm-hmm. knew that she had dementia. She said, I've got uh, dementia now and I can't remember things that happened in the recent past. But I can remember things back, uh, you know, from my childhood and all that. Everything is very clear. So, I mean, obviously I was part of her childhood, so she remembered me. And uh, she didn't remember that I lived in this house next door to her because that she had forgotten. So, I mean, it was very peculiar. I found it peculiar because I thought dementia happened only to old people. And she was not that old. She must have been, what, 40, 45, something like that then. And Mm. uh, she had this uh, strange memory problem. She couldn't remember things that had happened recently. And, you know, she could look back into her childhood and remember everything there. So that's what it Gosh. was. And then I, again, I didn't meet her for a long time because I went away somewhere or she went away somewhere. She got married in the meantime. She moved away from the house. So mm. uh, then I met her many years later when her brother died. You know, my brother have also died in the meantime and her brother died. And uh, I went to the, uh, just to, for a condolence call. And mm. she was there and she remembered this thing. Like she, when we were young and she told me about her first period. So yes. uh, she remembered that, you know, and she told me, don't tell Maya." Like she used to call her mother Maya. When I was going in to meet her mother who was still around, she said, don't tell her Mm -hmm. this, you know. And she told me so many years ago that don't tell my mother this and she's gone and touched these uh, statues of gods that were in their little puja ghar. And she shouldn't have touched them because she was having her period then. So she she had been told Mm -hmm. that she couldn't, she was impure and she couldn't touch these things. So when she touched them all the same and then she told told me about it and she didn't tell anyone else and she sort of told me not to tell her mother. Mm. So uh, that's how it was. And then after that, I heard, uh, I think last year, was it a year before last, that she had died. We didn't know Gosh, how she died. Died. she died. Yeah, she died. And I mean, she had become very sick and it was all a very, quite a mysterious thing because I didn't quite know what happened to her after she got married. She had gone mm. away and one didn't know. I mean, she kept, she had this strange I had this strange interlude with her when she said that uh, I was all covered up in a sari and I couldn't see anything and I I mean I was just married off and then I saw my brother and you're standing there with a chocolate in his hand and I was delighted so I mean she used to say all these tales you know and I didn't know whether to Mm -hmm. believe them or not what's actually going Mm -hmm. on in her life I couldn't I never really found out so she died Mm -hmm. in sort of well, not mysterious, I would say, but I mean, she had apparently become extremely anemic and not well, and she'd been sick for a long time. And of course, one didn't find out anything about that. So when she died, mm-hmm. I found out and all this came back to me, all the, the whole life that one had since then lived mm-hmm. and the part mm-hmm. of it that had been lived with her, you know. So mm-hmm. this is how things happen.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, what I found fascinating, about it, this whole, you know, of course, this menstrual taboo thing that she, uh, you know, kind of suppressed the story of that. But all these suppressed stories, which are actually, you know, have such a big uh, part to play in everyone's lives. You know, Yeah. that, I mean, while I was reading, uh, reading your book, I was thinking of that as well, you know, how uh, everybody has these beliefs and happenings or memories in their lives which have such power so you want to talk about that yeah I mean we uh, we grow
1: up I think particularly in India or maybe it's true for other countries like Latin America certainly so all the Latin American countries we grow up with so many superstitions and we grow up so with so many beliefs like they are floating around in the air almost you know I mean uh, I mean I'm constantly in touch with people like my gardener and my the woman who works for me and all of them have their superstitions I mean I've grown up with my own superstitions Like my mother used to say, if you see one star, the first star at night, and unless Mm -hmm. you see a second star, you shouldn't look at anyone who is close to you because you will be parted from that person. So now I've got it in my head. And every time I see one star, I have to look at, you know, something. Or you look at your left heel, she used to say. So, I mean, people grow up with all sorts of strange superstitions. And once you've got (laughs) it, it's too risky somehow to not believe in them, you know
0: yeah because you think somebody will die, yeah, exactly. but
1: there's too much at stake, it seems, and you would say well what's the what's the big deal? Okay, I'll look at my left heel. So you look at it, you know <laughs>
0: <Islam>. <laughs> so it happens like that, yeah, so it's so it's it's like there's so much pressure almost right yeah. that our minds place on us, yeah, you know, yeah, constantly, constantly.
1: I mean, one is uh, thinking something, and then some other thought comes and intrudes, and you know, compels you to do things that you were not going to do before. So it's all human nature. I mean, it's always so mysterious in the way things function.
0: Yeah. Uh, right. So then, I also, you know, I love the uh, the chapters on your father. Yeah. You know, at the I mean, you've described him, and but at the end of it, he still remains a mystery. Yeah as much to the reader as I'm sure he is to you. you know yeah, I mean. yeah.
1: To all of us. He was, I, he was a very, uh, almost a distant man. Like he never shared his uh, thoughts or what, you, what his feelings. He was always a very distant figure of a father. He was ex- very affectionate, very sort of kind, I would say, but he was also strict. You know, like he mm. had these, uh, I wouldn't call them rules, but he had these like, for instance, at, uh, till I was about 16 years old, I never saw a Hindi film. Because he didn't approve Mm -hmm. of us seeing films. He didn't want us to listen to Hindi film music because that would corrupt our taste. So I grew up Mm. totally in a world which was without film, you know. So except Mm. for the couple of films that we saw in school, like Swiss Family Robinson or something like that. But I never Mm. went to a movie hall or saw Hindi Bollywood films or anything of the sort. So, I mean, he had Mm. these rules for us and... uh, Eating also, as I've said in the, one of the chapters, I think, I mean, we had to eat everything on the menu, all the healthy stuff. You're not allowed to, uh, you know, refuse anything. And uh, we were all, we were a very silent family. I remember my, one of my school friends had gone with us once to mm. Delhi. She had traveled mm. with me on the train and Going to the station in the taxi, she said, nobody spoke throughout the way from, uh, we lived in Horskast then. (laughs) And from the station to Horskast, not one word was said. So she was very puzzled by this. How come nobody (laughs) speaks? (laughs) So so I just said, we are a silent family. Nobody talks Uh, at home. There was this like, because my father was so silent, you know. So it sort of Mm. affected everyone. And uh, nobody really spoke very much in his presence but of course uh, he he would talk and you could have later especially i started having discussions with him about all sorts of things about art and about literature and about writing and all that but i mean by and large he was not a very talkative person you know so i think mm. it just exerted an influence on everyone in our house mm.
0: and that line about light fastness yes i found that you know really uh, apt and uh, you're know, telling also. Yeah, uh, because yeah, he
1: told me about light fastness. I didn't know about it. And uh, it's apparently mm. the quality of a color uh, to... Uh, some colors fade and some colors don't fade. You know, so mm. th- this mm-hmm. is called light fastness, the quality of a color to resist uh, fading. So uh, mm. this... And then when I've, after he died, I began to think about it and I thought how he had been completely forgotten. I mean, like he was this... Uh, a uh, Hindi uh, publisher and critic and a th- uh, thinker and he used to write, he used to bring out this magazine called Kahani, in which all mm-hmm. the writers who are now famous and, uh, you know, like Agay and Irmal Varma, and anyone, you name anyone, all of them were mm-hmm. Krishna Sobti, Bhishma Sahani, everybody was published there for the first time. So, mm-hmm. and he built this whole, in a way, a generation of writers came about because of his, you know, culling people from the, many sort of stories that he received for Kahani, he sort of curled them. And he and they mm. became, as it turned out, I mean, as one can see, like a sort of validation of his taste. Everyone, all of these became great writers later on. And uh, mm. he also sort of had these uh, books of translation uh, published mm. from uh, a press called Saraswati Press. And uh, all yes. these uh, translations from foreign languages like Chinese and... You know, English, of course, and Russian, and there were so many languages that he had translated into Hindi. So, mm. Goldsworthy, I think he translated, had translated one of the Goldsworthy books, and Alan Payton, Cry the Beloved Country, it's called Dharthi Kyahasu. Mm. So, he had many mm. of these foreign literatures at a time when foreign literature was not being read so much in the Hindi world. So, he had them mm. all translated, and uh, he was kind of shaping the taste of a whole generation, the literary taste of a whole generation of readers. And uh, Mm. he, I think, was one of the, was seminal in bringing about modernity to uh, Hindi literature. And uh, Mm. immediately after he died, more or less, you know, very soon, he was just forgotten. Nobody even talks about him or even his art, that he was so prolific as a painter. And he sort of had all these exhibitions. His paintings were sent out to the Tokyo Biennale. Uh, But Mm. he's... Nobody really, he was completely forgotten. And because he had that personality, he would like to be forgotten. He was not the sort who would like to, you know, push himself forward or make himself Mm. uh, very public. So he was very Mm. reclusive. So it was, Mm. uh, he was even more easily forgotten because of that. You know, so Mm. uh, I thought this term lightfastness kind of, uh, you know, it it was very suitable for him. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah because I I was very struck by these lines many years later when he was no longer around I thought about light fastness wondering if something like it adhered to human lives as well some lives faded away while others survived in public memory and this is so true yes. and you go on to say all these things yeah. which you just told me and then you say um uh, he was forgotten almost immediately after his death despite all these things so uh you know, that that really struck me yeah. as something that happens. Yeah, yeah. And people don't, I mean, you know, that, that's what I liked about your book is the many things that one knows, but you've put them down and then you recognize it when you see it uh, yeah. on the page. You know? Yeah. So I think, I mean, that's a great, one of the great things about this book. Yeah, I've tried
1: not to be too, uh, you know, I've kept the tone very quiet. I've kept it low. I mean, I've tried not to, you know, use uh, I, exclamation points, I've tried to exclude completely. It's not a thing yeah. of, you know, uh, the tone is very, very measured and steady. So uh, mm-hmm. I've tried to do that, you know, it's, it's deliberate. I mean, it's a detached tone, even though I'm writing about things that have been uh, very close to me and I, you know, a lot of emotional stuff can you know around it but I mean I've tried to keep that out uh, deliberately you know to write in this tone Mm -hmm. which is very detached
0: but isn't that difficult Uh, Um, you know especially when you're talking about so I'm wondering how you achieved that yeah
1: it is difficult I suppose I mean uh, I mean you you get into I mean there's a voice that takes over you once you find Mm -hmm. your voice when you're writing something that voice is then present throughout I mean, you write one thing which is in that voice, the next one it carries on, you know, it's it's like that. So it became my writing voice for this piece. So mm. Uh, mm. that's how it came about.
0: Mm. And and this, this thing also struck me, the fact of Premchand, that I was his granddaughter, followed me everywhere. And you know, in this chapter, I think it's in Raw, um, on not writing. Yeah. And you yeah. go on about that. And just by being related to him, I had somehow inhaled his writing. Yeah. So... You know, talk about that, about Premchand. And, yeah, well, and Premchand this, you know, actually,
1: uh, Premchand was so, like, uh, when I was very young also, uh, Premchand was such a big mm-hmm. thing in our lives, you know, and in, in, not only mm-hmm. in our lives, but in all the people we met and in the general, because uh, I grew up in the Hindi heartland, I grew up in Allahabad, you know, mm-hmm. and Premchand is very big here. Is very big. Yes. Like even, yes. Uh, I mean, I don't know if anyone else has achieved this, but the common man on the street has read him, you know. So it is, hmm. it is uh, like that. So when I went to school here in Allahabad, I mean, obviously in the Hindi textbook, every year there would be a story by him, you know, in the rapid reading thing or, in, or even in the Hindi textbook, there would be something by him. So uh, Mm. I would look at the book at the beginning of term and I would sort of feel embarrassed that I knew that people would then, you know, notice me and turn around and look at me. And this is exactly what happened. You know, I I would dread that Mm. part when the story would come up because I hated to be the focus of attention and to you know, be looked at for this reason. And Mm. then immediately the teacher would point me out. Oh, there she sits, you know, it's her grandfather we are reading, you know. So somehow it was, I was, of course, I was very (laughs) proud of him, but I was also embarrassed. I didn't want to be noticed uh, like this. Mm. So it sort Mm. of followed me right from childhood. And then, I mean, then after that, of course, as I grew up, I mean, I realized how big he was and how ubiquitous his presence was everywhere. Like there was this, Mm. uh, I remember I was living in uh, East Delhi at one time in Patpalganj. And we, mm. I went to the local market there and there was this woman who had a stationery store and she mm. had come from Bihar. So she found mm. out, I don't know in the course of conversation, it must have come out how she knew I was Premchand's granddaughter, but she found out. And, uh, how? She, how did she find out? I really don't know how it fa- she found out. And maybe, maybe uh, wow. she asked me something and I replied and she put two and two together or something. I can't remember now. It was quite long ago. But then she started Mm -hmm. telling me about this village in Bihar where she had grown up and uh, there was Mm -hmm. a village library there and it was all, nobody used it, it was all dusty and it's got, it had cobwebs and all that and she went inside because she was so passionate about Premchand, she went looking for Premchand in that library and she went with the light of a candle and she sort of looked on the shelves and she uh, found uh, one of his books. And she brought it back yeah. and she actually remembered the whole paragraph, the, the way it began, and she recited it to me, you know, from one of the stories. So it was quite something, yeah. you know, like it it was it was so much a part of people's lives. I mean, his books were read sort of widely and people remembered and they connected. And so it was like he was very big in our lives, even at home, as I said, in the book. I mean, there was always something that would point to Chand. you know, like, Mm-hmm. As I said, in the exam exam time, um, we would complain about having to study and, you know, the lights going off once in a while. We had this, not once in a while, but quite often, the, we had power cuts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. we would complain about that. Then we were told, oh, look at him, I mean, you are complaining about this. And he would write and read by the light of a debris, which is this small lamp, mm-hmm. you know, oil lit lamp, mm-hmm. mitti ka so he would uh, read and write by that and and knew people are complaining about this, you know, and this stuff <laughs> would happen. Or when uh, things like all the foods that he, because he had a very delicate digestive system. So there were many things that were forbidden to him. So if one mm-hmm. of those things was cooked at home, that we would sort of comment on it that he would not have been able to eat this meal or you know about this maths thing was very uh, uh, you know, it was almost comic because I mean he would fail, he was very bad in maths. and uh, he hmm. sort of didn't uh, pass the qualifying test for some uh, for a college uh, because hmm. he had failed the math test. So uh, I was hmm. bad in math too. and in fact, I mean <laughs> this example would be given then people hmm. would I mean my parents, my mother especially would scold me and then but I knew that this is a mock scolding because I mean, This possibly leads to greatness because he was bad in math too, you know, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) It was ridiculous, the absurd levels that we admired him at home. No, no, it's just everyone was talking and my grandmother, of course, she had her own tales to tell about him and all that.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And uh, this must have been regular, people approaching you and treating you in a certain way because of the grandfather.
1: Yes, yes, of course. I mean, immediately you start getting a lot of attention when the name of Premchand is mentioned. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we used to go and see his uh, plays for uh, Idga is being performed somewhere or Bade Bhai Sahib is mm-hmm. being performed somewhere. So you go to the theater to see the play and if, mm-hmm. I mean, immediately people stand up and all this attention starts, you know, people start giving you, mis- mm-hmm. making such a fuss around you. So I was always... Mm-hmm you know, embarrassed by that, that what have we done? Why are we being given so much attention because of something that he wrote, you know? So it was Mm -hmm. always like that. And which is why I've made it a point not to mention my being Premchand's granddaughter when I write my bios, because I'm just, Mm -hmm. I'm embarrassed by it and proud of him, but embarrassed to be, you know, that people will certainly jump to conclusions when they sort of see this in my Mm -hmm. bio.
0: Hmm. Which also brings me to this, uh, uh, you know, the complicated linguistic situation. Yeah. Like, I mean, all of us find find ourselves. I mean, you know, contemporary Indians who've been educated in English, you know, have think about these things. I'm, you know, like when I was reading what you wrote, I was thinking that all of us think about, you know, this the the state that we find ourselves in and. Uh, but for you, it must have been even more acute because of the Premchan connection as well, right? Yeah. I mean, do so you worked, worked, yeah. worked through it yeah, very well. Yeah, I mean, so uh, it's Premchand connection
1: that. and also I think it's just a condition of being in South Asia. Everyone sort of, there are so many mm-hmm. languages and you use one language and the other one is pushing up behind it, you know. So even mm-hmm. in the writing, when you're writing in Hindi, for instance, I mean, because there's this double thing going on in one's head, the english is also mm. ringing somewhere at the back and if you're writing in english yes. then this whole history of other languages is pushing up against that so it's it is yes. a confused linguistic and it's a very confusing but a rich situation i would say yes. because yes. I mean, there are so yes. many languages that you're picking up there's Abadhi here that the servants speak and the people from uh, my like my relatives from distant villages would come they would be speaking Abadhi. some would be speaking bhojpuri because Lamahi is uh, Bhojpuri speaking, that's where my grandfather came from. So uh, Mm. these languages we would hear, and the Englishes, they are different Englishes as well, you know, because in school, uh, the German nuns had this very sort of correct, very particular kind of enunciation of words, and they would be very strict Mm. with uh, emphasis on certain words. Like if I once said, oh, industry, like this industry was a step. Not industry, industry. I mean, I still remember which industry, not emergency, emergency. You know, the sense the of the, they were just so very correct, you know, so. Elocution classes. Elocution, it was almost like that. So, uh, so, there was that English and then of course there was the Indian English on the roads as well. You, people you heard, people uh, you are acquainted with, who sort of speak English, but who are not really you know, Uh, into literature or you know not so comfortable with English so there's that Mm. English So I mean this is a real hodgepodge of languages I would say and then of course there are the other languages like Bangla there's lots of Bangla in Allahabad and my father was a fluent Bangla speaker so he would Mm. speak to people in Bangla if he knew that if he found out that you for instance know Bangla then he would just speak to you in Bangla and not in him because he used to love that he was a great uh, admirer of Tagore for instance and he spent many mm. years in Calcutta. So he was fluent in Bangla and he was read in Bangla. Everything, I mean, he, he was just like a natural Bangla speaker. He was present at Tagore's funeral. And he used mm. to describe how the hysteria, the mass hysteria that took, took over the public, you know, when he died and people were actually sort of plucking his hair and plucking hair from his beard just to have a little God. memento of him, you know, to carry back with them. Mm. So it became mm. like, sounded bizarre to me but he used to, He described the scene of the funeral, but uh, Mm. so he was he was also and there was Urdu, of course, from my mother's side and Farsi. Mm. So all these things, not that I knew any of these things to perfection, but I mean, you heard them. So they created a particular kind of sensibility, I think, which uh, people Mm. asked me, like when I started writing in Hindi, people were very surprised. Why do you write in Hindi? And it, there was hmm. one friend who asked me, have you written them in Roman? Because he couldn't believe that I could write Hindi, you know. So it was an English medium what? background. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was all, I think, uh, very particular to me maybe, or I don't know. It was, I started writing in Hindi and then I would think in English and I would write some other things in English, but my fiction was all in Hindi right from the start.
0: So... Hmm. Hmm. So you you feel that that, that's because it came from an authentic space or what you felt that, you know, that's what made it more authentic to yourself? Uh,
1: No, I think Mandula, it's more about uh, there's a I mean, we talk of first language and second language. So I think people have many first languages and not many, but I mean, like uh, my speaking first language, I would say is Hindi still. And my Hmm. reading first language is English and my writing first language perhaps is also English. But Hindi Mm -hmm. is also almost, you know, I'm comfortable in both. And Urdu, Mm -hmm. I can read Urdu, I can sort of translate from Urdu, but I I can also write it. But I'm not uh, comfortable with it because I'm not sure whether my spellings are right and all that. So so the first language and the mother tongue and all these things is a very kind of, uh, I would say, uh, a very particular kind of thing that is different for everyone. You know, people Mm, may have a different mm. writing, speaking, first speaking language and first writing language, all that. So it comes from that. So this becomes your own individual space in which you are using uh,
0: languages differently. Mm. And you say somewhere about, you know, this lake of languages within you or something. Yeah, a sleeping
1: pool of languages.
0: Uh, Sleeping pool of languages. So, so, yeah, this is because
1: one them. keeps hearing these languages around one. For instance, I've, I think I've used it in my the chapter in which I write about my Banaras home, in which one mm. heard beyond the big uh, wall of the uh, Haveli, there was a gully going mm. past. And the, in the morning, people, the, all these vendors would go past. You know, one of them mm. selling vegetables and, you know, other vendors and other people talking generally. And they would be speaking Mm. in Bhojpuri, so that you're listening to that and you are not talking in it, but somehow it's entering your consciousness and going into your awareness of languages, which is somewhere inside. Mm. So, Mm. and the same with, uh, I'm sure it's the same with other people in other states who are listening to languages that they are not speaking, but they are, you know, uh, which are kind of entering their uh, consciousness.
0: Yeah, anything written in one language much, must feel the presence of others. It's so true. Yes, at least. that's right. Yeah. yeah. Because I've always wondered, I mean, in these the cultures which speak only one though they have many dialects, like if you go to England, there's so uh-huh. many dialects. But still, you know... Uh, uh, I don't know, our linguistic situation is so very different yeah, yeah. and so complicated.
1: It's very complicated <laughs> and, and also complicated by mm-hmm. other things. You know, it's not just regional. It's also class-wise, I think. I yes, mean, it, yes. different classes speak different sorts of languages, you know. So even the same language will sound different from a person who belongs to, uh, say, a very kind of uh, rich background, a very kind of educated background. And there's someone else who's mm-hmm. perhaps in a slightly... Uh, less uh, comfortable situation would we'll be speaking it in a different way. How and where you've been educated, what you've heard on the street, mm. what you haven't heard. You know, mm. there are all sorts of words that vocabularies that uh, say, for instance, a person who's living cut off in a bungalow like I did is uh, mm. really cut off from the language street speak and even abuses. Yeah. I mean, Like people in my family, there was this taboo and nobody was allowed to swear. So, you know, other people are servants also. Any other people who are coming to the house, vendors, anyone, Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone was stopped from using swear words. So that was something (laughs) that was, I I now think of it as a denial. I feel that I should have known those. And then they enrich your vocabulary also, because there are some situations, (laughs) especially for a creative writer, when you want to use those words and you don't have any. And this, yeah. I felt the same about mythology, you know, because mythological texts, were, we were not brought up in a religious background at all. So I mm. knew nothing about, you know, the religious texts. So I now, mm. uh, like people's uh, grandmothers, sort of tell them stories right from their childhood about, you know, the Mahabharata or Ramayana or even from mm. uh, other sort of religions, Bible, Quran. So mm. um, we, we were completely... Deprived of that, I now feel I, I wish that my mm. grandmother or somebody had you know told us these tales because mm. later on you can't pick up the scriptures, so and the scriptures are the richest source of literature, I think because they're all stories basically mm. at the end of the day mm.
0: Mm. Mm. that's that's true though it's also i suppose i mean when you read about your grandmother, one can see where she came from and why they wouldn't be. Uh, uh, talking about scripture so much. Yeah, right? yeah,
1: yeah. Nobody did in my family. We were completely like a mm-hmm. secular family, like, mm-hmm. in the sense of. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody practiced religion. My grandmother practiced. My maternal grandmother, my nani. she was a strict Shia. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, I mean, mm-hmm. then my mother also eventually. This they went to Moharram in the, you know ki Jodi at the house because there's a big mm-hmm. imam bara there, and all the Shias of Banaras gather there. So everyone goes there for Moharram. So that is there, and she used to. Recite her uh, nohas and Marcia's and all that, but apart from that, mm-hmm. in the daily living, there was no religion involved for us.
0: We were mm-hmm. just not brought but up. But this, this, I think, this this was the case for uh, a, a lot of people, lot of people, right? Of that, the of I mean, the 60s, 70s, even till the 80s. Yeah. And it's only later, maybe, that this country started becoming more overtly <laughs> religious. I right? I don't true. know. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. I mean, we have become mm. so much more pseudo-religious, I would say, now. Uh, yes, we used to yes. be religious, now we are pseudo-religious. And uh, yes. we are also, yeah, and I mean, in the same way that we have become much more conventional, I think, conventional or whatever, much more narrow and restricted in our choices. And because, yes. I mean, I think um, when I say this, I'm talking of, say, Hindu-Muslim marriages. Like my parents mm. were Hindu, it, it was a Hindu-Muslim marriage. And I mean, Mm. it was fine. I mean, it was fine. There was no problem at all. I mean, no trouble was created. Nothing happened. And now you look, Mm. the same thing would have happened now. I mean, we have become so much more conservative, so much more orthodox now. I mean, this would not be, I mean, of course, we know what's going on at the moment with all this love jihad business. But I mean, you know, uh, things have become much more, I would say, politicized because of, it's because of the politicization that this has happened.
0: And also lives have become narrower in a sense, yes. I mean, psychologically, I yes. feel, you know, it might just be a function of uh, us being yeah, a different cool. generation. Yeah, I <laughs> think, yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. But, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, also, when uh, also I was struck by this, you've pointed this out, the same process that limited the reach of writing in English also made the world beyond these middle-class homes inaccessible to be written about. And, you know, when I read this, I was thinking this is exactly why, I mean, maybe I'm being very harsh, uh, our writing in Indian English, I mean, fiction, is sometimes so limited, you know.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think uh, that is absolutely what I meant when I wrote that. Because, I mean, if you are not interacting with people from uh, apart from your own class, Then how do you have access Mm. to their homes, how they live, how they speak, what's going on in their lives? You know, it is totally, we are completely cut off from that. So you can't, and especially things like dialogue is very difficult to do in English because everything that you hear on the street is not going to be in English. So how do you translate that in your head first? And it doesn't sound right. It sounds awkward, cliched, you know, sort of uh, stilted. So it's very hard Mm. to do these uh, things, to live life in one language and to write in another is a very difficult thing to do. And of course, you can either sort of write perhaps about your own class, which is fine. I mean, then it would be authentic and it would be you'd be able to write about it or,
0: you know, Mm. uh, but there's a sameness in it, because everybody's yes, writing yes, about the same There's a sameness, parts. certainly <laughs> there's a sameness in it. Yeah, and
1: also, yeah. I mean, I think I find recently that some uh, writing has become a little more agenda-driven than it used to be. Like you have, you know from before that you're going to write about this. So you write mm. with this purpose. You sort of want to paint uh, what is going on in society around you. You look at that and you sort of try to present that in a book of fiction so somehow that doesn't work for me because there are two sorts of writing of uh, novels I think it's one in which you are uh, silent within yourself and you are not looking at the outside noise which is happening around you and something arises Mm -hmm. from you which you have absorbed in your unconscious mind and when you're writing Mm -hmm. it comes out of you from there it's not going out mm-hmm. from, uh, the movement is not outward to inward, but inward to outward, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So you are putting on paper something that's within you, which of course has formed mm-hmm. over many years of absorbing from the outside atmosphere. But it's not, yeah. it's not shallow. It's not something that you are uh, just picking up from what's going on at the moment, you know. It's, it's not mm-hmm. a temporary thing that you have noticed and you've just gone and written about it. So.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and when you write, write towards with an agenda, it also becomes. I mean, even if your agenda is like whatever you know, you think it's secular and all that, it becomes stilted, right? Because yeah, there's there's a sort of what does one say? There's a uh, it's a there's a sort of prescriptive. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. To it you're going about it with you know with
1: a then it becomes a propaganda uh, thing now yeah. it's you're trying to propagate a particular opinion so it mm-hmm. is not you have not absorbed it it is not interiorized enough to be able to mm-hmm. for you to be able to write about mm-hmm. it then it becomes like a journalistic piece or a reportage or uh, you know yeah. some kind of propaganda writing it certainly doesn't make for good fiction i think
0: yeah which also brings me to this you know the the criticism of uh, uh of that you mentioned yeah. like, you know how some some dalit writers think that you know his using uh, dalit characters is is problematic yeah. or, you know yeah yeah so it falls in the same
1: yeah I mean there's this whole business of appropriation going on at the moment you know? yes, everyone yes, thinks yes. that you have appropriated my life, you're writing about my life, you have no business writing about my life because you haven't experienced it. You know, so this would kind Mm. of put an end to all imaginative literature if that were to happen. If one were to write only about one's own life, about one's own class, about one's own surroundings, you know, then eventually it comes down to just writing about yourself. You can't write about anything else because everything else becomes appropriation, you know. So it's it's a bit like that. So he's being Mm -hmm. told that, I mean, why is he writing about Dalits and why is he using words like chamar, you know. I mean, these were words... Mm. These are words that have become loaded now, like they have become sort of derogatory usage now. They were not then when he was writing. It was a professional category. It was an occupational category. People who were working in chamla, uh, leather, were chamars, Mm -hmm. you know. So it came from there. It was not considered to be a derogatory term. So he was using it Mm -hmm. then. But now people are saying that, why did he say this? And now, of course, people are now Dalits and, you know, these other things that have come up later. But they were not so in Mm. his time. So he's being Mm. criticized for something, you know, in
0: the wrong context. Mm. So, you know, I was also thinking like, so all these things came up when I was reading you. And I was thinking, no, as we go forward, I mean, you know, like, if we're constantly like this is against a censorship of the mind right so uh, how do, how how we in this complicated linguistic and ideological and everything situation yeah. how do does one or how does an author write effectively without censoring herself you know well, uh, actually,
1: uh, writing in India already is a very loaded kind of thing. Because, I mean, when you mm-hmm. write, as I said, somewhere I think in that essay only in the, on not writing, that if you mm-hmm. write, uh, say, about uh, the names already carry come with their own history and their own baggage, you know. So if you yes. write uh, yes. Junjunwala or Saxena or, you know, uh, Kashyap or some, I mean, these are all, uh, they have their own ways of living and their own. So you have to con- kind of conform to those firstly. You know, so yes. before your own prejudices come into uh, play, these these are things mm. that are prescribed. I don't think in, in any Western literature this is the case, not in English. Yeah, uh, that yeah. you already have to deal with all these uh, things that are given from before. Like they have their own distinctive speech, and like I've said, mm. in the parrot, parrot. Maybe with Black literature.
0: Americans. Maybe with Black Americans. Yeah, there might be a slight.
1: Yeah, edge Black of American that is different. Yeah, because they also yeah. have uh, their own background. I mean. Name, but names would not mean, I think names would still be sort of neutral over there. Mm. I don't know whether you can mm. tell a person's history or, uh, you know, a way of living by taking a name. Like here we have, mm. a, like you can have a Sindhi name, you can have a Maharashtra name. Yes. You can have, all these come with their particular uh, sort of uh, aspects, you know, which is yeah. not the case yeah. anywhere else. So it is difficult. Mm. Yes, it is difficult. But of course, you have to do the job. Somehow you do it, you know. So, which is perhaps one of the reasons why i chose to write in hindi to start with but then uh, hindi also has its own set of problems so i mean you can't be problem free wherever you go you know there's something or the other which is going to be difficult
0: but 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 as a bilingual writer you know do do you, you i don't know since you chose hindi to write in write your fiction in do you find it more free when you use Hindi, Uh, you know? I'm not sure, Manjula.
1: In fact, I recently have been experimenting with uh, writing fiction in English. I mean, after this Mm memoir, I started something which I thought will be a fiction piece in English. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure because there are different things that you are uh, free with in English. And in Hindi, uh, there are other things. Like, uh, as I said, dialogue and, you know, people speaking on the street or, you know, street vendors' cries or things like that come better in Hindi. But uh, in mm-hmm. English, there, there's a certain sensibility that you are able to convey better in English because it's a modern sensibility. You are sort of seeing things mm-hmm. around you, and you're, you've been reading, so reading also sort of uh, makes uh, your sensibility for what it is. You know, so those things mm-hmm. also have to be written down, and those perhaps come better in English. So mm-hmm. I suppose it's just best to keep writing in both. You know, just mm-hmm. just keep crossing over. And you've always, I mean, I've always been in this act of migration anyway, you know,
0: as I've said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a great paragraph where you said this about being in transit. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to find it. (laughs) Yeah, it's in that, uh, it's in the
1: same essay. It's in not writing. Yeah. Yeah, it's always because, I mean, there's so much, uh, 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 so much that is different in your, uh, when you're writing in Hindi, you're going to school where everyone is, uh, everything is in English at home no one speaks mm. English so you're migrating from there then your grandmother comes she's speaking in a particular way so I mean I suppose everyone has these you know I mean it's not yeah. particular to me this is just a condition of being a South Asian.
0: Yeah that's true here it is it yeah. wasn't surprising that my particular situation should make me feel that I was always in transit I belong to a middle class that was still marked by colonial and feudal attitudes I had an English medium education, I wrote fiction in Hindi that connected me to a circle of Hindi readers but which few of my English educated friends read. I was constantly moving between languages and from Hindi reading friends to English reading ones and those who read nothing at all in either language. There was a Shia Muslim background of my mother and the secular Hindu one of my father, the polished Urdu of my maternal grandmother that on occasion would switch to a coarser idiom when she spoke with a servant. This made me laugh. (laughs) Will <laughs> mean, I wash my ass? Because
1: yeah. I was, I was yeah. translating. Yeah, yeah, she was, <laughs> she was very outspoken, completely. I mean, she was completely uninhibited and she would just say any old thing, you know. <laughs> I mean, including I sort of, of sketological stories, and she would sort of uh, uh, recite these things. And there was this really kind of uh, sketological story, I think, that she used to tell us about this Afimchi, you know, there, there was this Afimchi. Uh, you know what an afimchi is? I mean, yeah, yeah, he's an yeah, opium yeah. addict. So there were all these yeah. stories about this uh, afimchi, and they were or some of them. They were all very funny, and she would act them out. You know, I mean, I remember <laughs> there was this one thing about this afimchi who went to the uh, loo to do his business, and uh, not to the loo, to the fields to do his business. And these <laughs> thieves had been sort of watching him all this while. You know, so he went with this silver lota that he had. Uh, he kept it next to him. And these thieves came and they sort of pushed him over and they stole his Lota and ran away. So this happened on several nights. And then two or three nights this happened that the thieves would come and push him over and steal his Lota. So the next mm-hmm. time this Afimji got this bright idea and he sat down like in the formation of a Lota, you know, with a spout, he sort of bent his head and put his arms up like a spout. And he sat there thinking that now these fellows are going to get really confused. <laughs> so they came and pushed him over again so he did, bhal, bal, bul bal, you know, he acted out as if the water was pouring out of him. And again, the thief ran away with the lota. So, I mean, these things we found extremely funny when we were children. We used to be completely roaring with laughter. And she would be saying all these, and she would start shaking with laughter herself because she starts saying it all with a very straight face. But then she couldn't resist, and she'd be sort of rolling with laughter herself. So it was all very really funny, and she was, she was an extraordinary woman, I think.
0: Completely extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, I can keep on talking to you because, I mean, I, uh, you know... I think our hour is probably up now. Yeah, it's about almost an hour. Yeah. So, so for the reader, go out and get uh, Raw Umber, a a memoir by Sarah Rai. It is, um, it's a great read and, uh, I mean, uh, you know, as our conversation kind of mentioned, there's so many things in it that make you think, uh, like, there are lots of things that you know, as a South Asian, as an Indian, uh, you know, you think about constantly. But uh, I think Sarah has really articulated it and put it down in writing, so it strikes. You you look at it with great recognition, and you know, wonder why uh, you hadn't thought of it in quite that way before. So I, I found it a very rewarding um, read because of those things. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, thanks, Manjula,
1: for having me. Bye. Bye. <laughs>